We come to that time in our worship service where we direct our attention to the Word of God this morning, and I'm very excited to uh, spend some time with you there in a way that hopefully honors our great God and Savior. Um, with three weeks left till our celebration of uh, the Lord's resurrection, and in preparation of that time, we need to continue to focus on the truth about the resurrection in this little two-part series that I'm calling The Resurrection Makes All the Difference. The Resurrection Makes All the Difference. If you were with us last time, then you considered with us five important facts about Jesus' resurrection. Let me just rehearse those with you. We said that the resurrection is a historical event. It really happened. The resurrection also confirms absolute truth which means that Jesus proved himself and his teaching to be legitimate when he rose from the dead. He said, third, that the resurrection made all the difference for the twelve. They became totally different men once they saw Jesus risen. They were bold ambassadors for the truth. And then the resurrection, we said, should be the preoccupation of every true follower of Jesus Christ. It was on the minds of the early Christians the major talking point of the evangelists, the motivation of those in the church who champion righteousness in a very anti-Christian setting. And it should be all of that for us as well. We should be very preoccupied with the resurrection. Finally, we said that there are many Christian doctrines that stand on the resurrection, really all of them. The doctrine of the resurrection is the absolute foundation of all other doctrines, all other Christian doctrines, because without the resurrection, they would fall. The resurrection of Christ is what makes our faith real. It makes all the difference. I want to carry on with our theme that it makes all the difference, and this time I want to examine with you the mechanics of the resurrection, the mechanics that is to say, how does this phenomenon, this miracle of God, actually work, and how does it bring about change in us? I'm talking about Jesus' resurrection, of course. So let me try and illustrate what I'm talking about when I say we need to look at or consider the, the mechanics of the resurrection, the operating principle behind it. I recently saw an immunologist about miasma. In the midst of our discussion, I asked him a very simple layman's question. Doctor, what actually causes the allergic reaction? Now, in terms that I could understand, he explained to me that it's basically an inflammation within the body. That's it, inflammation. In the case of asthma, the bronchial tubes swell and significantly reduce the flow of oxygen. I then asked him, but what causes the inflammation in the first place. Why, for example, when a dog scratches my arm, does my skin swell at that point? Again, with all patients, he explained that people with allergic reactions or allergies react too quickly to a particular protein that infiltrates the body. In the case of a dog protein, my body produces an abundance of histamine to counter it, not realizing that it doesn't need really to counter it because there's nothing dangerous about a dog protein. 
So the abundance of histamine in my body at that particular location causes the skin to rise or to be raised. <laughs> now, when I know what's happening to me, what the cause is, what to expect, that I can use antihistamines to counter my histamine overload, and most importantly, that I need to prevent this process of, uh, from repeating in my lungs and causing further irreparable damage there, it helps me in the way that I live with asthma. Helps me greatly in the way I live with asthma. Now you know basically what the resurrection of Christ is. Jesus came back from the dead. Simple enough. But how did he exactly? If you're wondering, well, do I, do I need to know the specifics of that? Isn't it enough for me to know that Jesus conquered death for me? Well, I would say that knowing the mechanics of the resurrection, the fundamental operating principle behind it, and the certain impact that it should have on you will help you live with your faith more effectively. The same way that my knowledge of the mechanics of an allergic reaction helps me to live with my asthma. Turn to John chapter 12 then, if you will. Find your way there, John chapter 12. There are three verses, just three, that I want to examine with you this morning. I've presented them to you in the bulletin. We've published them. Uh, in terms of propositions, propositions, in order to help us understand a little bit better the basic operating principle behind the resurrection of Christ and also the natural results of the resurrection in our lives. Okay, Now keep in mind that the resurrection did not happen in a vacuum. It resulted in a chain reaction of events in our lives. And it affected us greatly. So with that in mind, let me give you the first proposition. The first proposition is Jesus is the fruit-bearing seed. That's in verse 24. We're going to look at verse 24, 25, and 26. Verse 24, Jesus is the fruit-bearing seed. This is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Once again, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus uses a familiar analogy from botany to drive home this particular proposition to the disciples. A seed that is buried in the ground dies so that it will bear much fruit. Now notice that it addresses two aspects then of the resurrection. Jesus is not speaking about wheat and seeds. He's speaking about the resurrection. He's just using this as an analogy. So what does he say about the resurrection? There are two aspects that he brings out. One is what it is. What is the resurrection? And the other is what it produces. All right. So let's focus first on what it is getting to the mechanics of it all, the operating principle. I would say that the resurrection is a supernatural transformation of Jesus' body from death to life. It's a supernatural transformation 
of Jesus' body from death to life. And Jesus explains that transformation this way. He says, a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies so that it will bear fruit. There's the transition, the, the, the transformation. It dies, and then it comes to life and bears fruit. Now, dying in Jesus' analogy is not literal, of course. If the seed really died, it wouldn't produce wheat. Neither is it scientifically accurate. Does that surprise you? Yes, Jesus is not scientifically accurate here with this particular analogy. Seeds are activated once they're buried and they begin to grow. They don't die. So death is figurative, really, and that's how Jesus is using it. He's not interested in being scientific. He's being figurative. It is figurative for germination. But we understand that figures like this often violate scientific explanations in order to accommodate a layman's understanding. You do it every time you talk about a spectacular sunrise or a sunset, which are both scientifically inaccurate. The sun neither rises nor sets. The earth rotates around the sun. We all know that. But no one ever speaks of a beautiful earth rotation, do they? So the farmers in Jesus' day spoke of a seed that germinates and produces life this way, as dying in the ground. Jesus uses this illustration to explain then what, hap what will happen to him. He is the seed, the seed of the eternal life, or of eternal life, rather, we might say. He will go into the ground <clears throat> upon his literal death, <clears throat> he will then rise, as Isaiah prophesied, as a shoot springing forth from the stem of Jesse, uh, and, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And that tells us plainly the mechanics of Jesus' resurrection. It tells us what it is. He literally dies so that just as the seed dies in the ground and becomes a living plant, Jesus comes out of the grave alive victorious, and in a glorified body that is outfitted for heaven. <clears throat> this illustration confirms that Jesus literally dies, he, that he will be buried, and that he will rise again. That is the operating principle behind the resurrection. It's not figurative. It's not fiction. It was a real death, a real interment, a real transformation and a genuine resurrection. Now, I said that we would present not only the operating principle behind Jesus' resurrection, what it is, but the necessary impact that it has, you know, what it does to us, what it has done to us. In this case, as Jesus himself says, the resurrection produces fruit. Jesus is the fruit-bearing seed. And he borrows this paradox of the death of the seed, bringing forth the life of the plant, that life comes, in order to teach that life comes out of, out of death, out of his own death. But more than this, Jesus perpetuates the same kind of life that he enjoys with the Father. He perpetuates it. As the fruit-bearing seed of eternal life, he will give eternal life to others. 
Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers, which means that many more will follow in the resurrection to eternal life. Let me show you where this is in verse 24, in case you're wondering. It's found really in the contrast that Jesus makes between a seed that remains alone and one that bears much fruit, two different kinds of seed. The contrast between the two is what brings this out. According to Jesus' botany illustration, a seed that doesn't germinate is, is of use to no one. Why is that? Well, it's, it doesn't perpetuate itself. There's no life there. It just stays in the ground and rots. It remains alone, which is an apt description that Jesus uses for his purposes here. You see, seeds are meant to sprout life of their own and bear fruit that will perpetuate themselves in other areas. A dead seed does nothing, produces nothing. So the fruit-bearing seed germinates and it replicates. And Jesus did too. He died to save a people for himself, a people that know his voice and respond to it and follow after him and do the same things he does, spreads his good reputation around the world. They are little Christs in that they magnify the glory of Christ in the world. They speak his message, carry out his agenda, they promote his teaching, and they will follow him into glory. So once Jesus died to pay for the sins of those that he would deliver from death to life, it was a foregone conclusion that eventually those redeemed would become genuine disciples. There's no question about it. It would happen. It has to happen, or it had to happen that way, because Jesus is the fruit-bearing seed. It couldn't have been any other way. And his resurrection confirms it. And we know that from church history and from our own conversion that it has, that it has happened just as he said. Now, uh, just one implication of this proposition is that Jesus, as the fruit-bearing seed, necessarily saved people by his death. We talked about that just a moment ago as we celebrated the Lord's Supper today. <clears throat> when he died, he started the fruit-bearing process it couldn't be any other way. Remember, the moment a seed germinates in the ground, it is a foregone conclusion that it will bear fruit. It can do nothing else. Jesus' death saved a people for God. And the Old Testament saints and, and, the, and all the saints in church history are proof of that. They are his fruit produced by God's regenerative work. Now, this great truth of Jesus' death and resurrection being, being the catalyst for replicating himself in his fruit leads us nicely into the next related proposition of verse 25. <clears throat> Here's the second proposition. Jesus bears a unique kind of fruit. So we, we know that he is the fruit-bearing seed, and now we consider the kind of fruit that this seed bears. When it dies and it rises, and it perpetuates itself. What kind of fruit is that? Jesus said in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. 
But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What's going on here? Well, here's where we see how the resurrection affects us. Jesus moves from talking about himself as the fruit-bearing seed to the kind of fruit that he bears. The fruit refers specifically to those who have been transformed by Jesus, who now grow out of his stalk, those who have been born again. So let's open that up. Remember, we're still in the context of the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection. The resurrected Christ produced fruit in keeping with himself. So Jesus says here that the kind of fruit that he bears, the kind of person that Jesus raises from the dead in conversion, is the kind that does not love this life, but hates it. He doesn't love his life, he hates it, or this life. Well, what, what do we mean exactly? Well, we, we need to be specific about the, these, these familiar terms because they're too often misunderstood. Most Americans understand love and hate as mere emotions. We've talked a little bit about that before. Many American Christians also have a bad habit of taking those kinds of definitions, those 21st century definitions and reading them back into the first century biblical text. Um, and that's really not a good thing to do. Jesus uses love and hate here in a way that cannot, cannot be reduced to mere emotion or feelings. They certainly are not feelings in every instance of scripture. Now biblical love, for example, includes emotion, yes, but more than that. It also includes action. And I would argue it's first an action before it's an emotion for the simple reason that the New Testament explains God's love for us in terms of giving of himself. It never explains God's love in terms of how he feels. It's always in how he gives of himself. God loved us in that he gave his son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, more than this, the New Testament also commands us to love. And emotions cannot be commanded directly since they are the byproduct of our thinking and our behavior. They come from our heart. Now, try as you may, you would never be able to just sit in a seat in your room by yourself and create an instant brotherly love for an enemy. It'll never happen. But you can nurture one over time by giving yourself to that person in a number of meaningful ways. As we put ourselves out for an enemy, we are assured that the right emotion will eventually follow. That is an ironclad principle in Scripture. Now, changing your thinking and behavior, then, is the only way to change your feelings. When it comes to loving an enemy, you must learn to put yourself out for that individual, regardless of how you feel about him, and eventually the proper feeling will come. Now, in light of the fact that God's love and the love of his people is first an action, it makes absolute sense that both love and hate in the New Testament often contrast not two different emotions, but two different acts, right? The act of choosing, that's love, and the act of rejecting, 
That's hate. So let me support that, all right, in case you're skeptical. <clears throat> you might remember that Jesus said it's impossible to serve two masters. Remember that? You'll wind up loving one and hating the other. Now, serving in this context further defines what love and hate are. Love means that we will serve one, and hate means that we will neglect the other. Or to say it another way, we will give preference to one over the other. It's not that we become enemies of the other or have murderous thoughts about the other. No, we simply choose to reject that person for someone else. And all our time and energies that go into treasuring and worshiping the one will reveal just how disinterested we are in the other. Now, of course, those kinds of actions that we display, the choosing and the embracing, eventually, of course, will promote certain feelings of affection for that particular object. But, but in, the, in the initial instance, we're talking simply about choosing one and neglecting the other. That's what the text says. This understanding of choosing one over the other is, <clears throat> is the way that we must also understand Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10. He commands us to hate mother and father, brother and sister, and love him instead. That's exactly what it says. Now, Jesus cannot possibly mean that we become enemies of our parents and despise them, cultivating murderous thoughts in our hearts toward them. No, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is the biggest advocate of parents, and Jesus would want us to honor them. Rather, here in Matthew 10, Jesus wants our undivided loyalty. We yield to him. <clears throat> he must come first in our lives. Jesus must always win out in our decisions. To love him means to do what pleases him above everyone else. And if you're constantly putting Jesus first, well, it's bound to set you at odds with others, even those in your own family. And when you choose to obey Jesus' word instead of giving preference to your parents' wishes, it may very well seem to them and anyone observing that you don't care about what they say. The figure that Jesus uses here, by the way, is very strong. In essence, he is saying our devotion and loyalty to him should so overshadow any devotion to our family that it may very well make it seem to others that we despise them. And of course, he's, again, not advocating that we despise anyone. You know, as much as our culture wants to define love in terms of emotion, and they do, you know, they say, you can't tell me who to love, you can't command me to love, and so on. We understand that. But they still cannot help but measure it by actions, right? Isn't that interesting? A young girl says to her boyfriend, who's thrown himself in his new job, you love your job more than you love me. And we know exactly what she means, don't we? He takes his job home with him. He thinks about how to be better at it, spends long hours researching it, and has little time for their relationship. And that's the conclusion she comes to. And you say, Jane, Jane, I know Bill cares for you. To which she replies, well, he has a funny way of showing it. Yes, Actions. Actions. Well, 
Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9 that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. <clears throat> the context defines love and hate as God showing mercy to one and withholding it from another. It was a choice God made in the counsel of his own will and according to his own good pleasure. That's the most we can say. The context gives no indication that Jacob was the better choice or that Jacob deserved God's choosing or that God felt something for one against the other. No, he simply chose one and rejected the other, showed mercy to one and withheld it from the other. Now in our verse in John 12, Jesus characterizes the fruit that he produces, his disciples, as hating their lives in this world. In light of our brief study of love and hate, we know that he really means that they will choose and nurture another kind of lifestyle. That's really what he's talking about. The reference to life does not mean our physical bodies, but a lifestyle, an existence, a way of life driven by a particular worldview. Jesus' disciples will give no preference to a worldly lifestyle, complete with its myriad of secular philosophies and worldly wisdom and, and the behavior that goes with it. They will choose another. That's what's true of the kind of fruit that Jesus bears. So when Jesus tells us that he will produce people who will despise their lives, he's not telling us that his disciples will choose to neglect their own bodies or starve themselves or even hurt themselves. By the way, God takes no pleasure in self-abuse, just in case you're wondering whether for fun, a thrill, attention, or for religious purposes that are typical in asceticism. Rather, Jesus means of these two complete opposite lifestyles, the worldly and the godly, the secular and the spiritual, his disciples will choose the latter. Notice the phrase, in this world, it's key. It makes what Jesus says here practical to everyone in every era. It refers to the way that we are currently living our lives at present time in this world right now. And how are you living your life currently, presently, in this world right now? Do you despise a worldly lifestyle? And do you choose a godly lifestyle? Because the godly lifestyle is characteristic of the kind of fruit that Jesus produces. Now let's not miss the force then of Jesus' contrast here. Either you live in this world according to this world and for this world, or you live in this world according to God's word rejecting this world's vain philosophies. If the former is true of you, then you love this world. You prefer a worldly lifestyle, you've chosen it, and you are partial to the world's way of thinking and behaving. What's more, you stand opposed to the godly way of life. If you live by the latter, then you will give preference to Christ's word, the Bible, to kingdom living. You invest all your time and energies in the kingdom of heaven rather than in this kingdom. In addition to that, if you're living in this 
other kind of lifestyle, this spiritual lifestyle, this kingdom lifestyle, then you reject the refuges and the counterfeit redeemers that this world offers you for pain and solace and comfort and help and hope. You reject them. You refuse to adopt worldly philosophies about how to live your life and understand the human mind. Rather, you retreat to the Bible for that. You reject the worldly tactics such as dishonesty, lying, deception in order to get ahead in life. You reject the world's insistence on the need to be rich and its idea of what it means to be successful, knowing that you are already rich in Christ. And you look to the Bible for what it means to be successful. The world and all that it has to offer is not something that a disciple of Jesus puts any hope in, beloved, or invests in or strives after for the simple reason that he or she is a fruit of Jesus' work and Jesus never produces bad fruit. Fruit that he produces is not predisposed to a worldly lifestyle. Only those who are not of Jesus' stock love their lives and live for the here and now. They place all their comfort and pleasure, all their meaning and significance in what they can see and touch, this temporal world and its, its worldly system of thought. And because their hearts are predisposed to this world, they, they have already received their reward. They get what they want, maybe an abundance of it. But in the end, they lose their lives for all eternity. What a message this is for a world where hedonism reigns supreme, huh? And is hailed as the panacea for all our ills. The heart of Jesus' gospel it's all about self-denial. Deny yourself. Come after me is a constant refrain of the Gospels. And those that, that are the fruit of Jesus' seed will do just that. Can you see how the resurrection of Christ affects us? How it confirms that we are people who hate this world system and, and want no part of it, but, but run our lives by kingdom principles? Is that true of your life? Do people in your circles of life know about you? Do they know this about you? Can they see it? Is, is that what you communicate to them by the way you live and talk and behave? These are questions that the text asks us, beloved. We need to answer them honestly. Well, we've talked about the fruit-bearing seed and the kind of fruit that this seed bears. Let's look at the third proposition, and that is the seed-bearing fruit. Jesus bears seed-bearing fruit Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, they will be also. Anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All right. This verse is, is really a further description of verse 25 as it talks about the kind of fruit that Jesus bears. But it does add to it an important truth, which is why I separated it out. Here's the important truth. This fruit that Jesus produces has its own seed. Has its own seed. Now, you'll pardon me if I press Jesus' botany metaphor a bit. 
Jesus' disciples, those that he died for and saved and transformed, who are the fruit that he bore, are themselves fruit, uh, seed-bearing fruit. What I mean by that is they, like the Master, go on to bear much fruit as they die to self and live to God. Otherwise, they remain alone and are, by the de definition, not truly fruits of Jesus' work. They produce righteous works for Christ. They replicate themselves through the preaching of the gospel when God sees fit to grant faith and repentance in that situation. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And then follows that up with, where I am, there will my servant be also. So the genuine disciple of Jesus wants to be where Jesus is all the time. What does that mean exactly? That we, we should be with Jesus or where Jesus is all the time. We know that Jesus is in heaven. So some might simply understand that we Christians are simply to have a desire to be in heaven someday. That's really all it means. While it's true that we should desire that, to reduce what Jesus says here to that would be a gross misunderstanding of what he means. Remember, when Jesus was teaching this, he hadn't gone to, to the cross yet. He hadn't died yet. Therefore, there is actually more here to say that Jesus was talking about the life that he was called to endure on earth that would bring honor to God. And we all know what kind of life that was, don't we? It entailed obedience to the scriptures, God's revealed will. It entailed suffering and persecution. Jesus suffered reproach outside the gate. And it entailed dependence upon the Holy Spirit, not on the securities of life. Jesus' idea is really more comprehensive than actually either of these two views by themselves. To get, a close as to get as close as possible to what Jesus is driving at here, we need really to combine Jesus' life before the cross on earth and his life after the cross in heaven, or to put it another way, his suffering and his glorification. So with that in mind, we understand that the Christian life really has two aspects to it. One is our life now, while we walk this earth, as Jesus once did. The other aspect of our lives is glory. And when all is said and done, and we're with the Father in heaven forever, as is now the case with Jesus, we will be in the place where he is. So the two are related these two, but the relationship between them is not so obvious to many Christians today. Let's understand it a little bit better. Understand the order of their occurrence, okay? We have to suffer the kind of life that Jesus, uh, that Jesus suffered, the kind of life that the cross promises before we enter the glory that the cross secures, right? That was true of Christ, and it will be true of all his seed-bearing fruit. It means that we, that persecution for our faith is a necessary part of the Christian life. Paul told Timothy that. He told him that all who desire to be godly will suffer persecution. You cannot have the crown without the cross first. 
understand also, and this really is implied by what we've just said, but I, I want to separate it out for emphasis. Understand also that the life of the cross is not an optional lifestyle. No more than the life of glory will be optional for us at the end of time. There are no other options for Christians at the end of time than to be with God in glory. That's where we'll be. That's where we belong. In the same way, we must also think that persecution for the faith is not optional for us in this present life. It is not an option. It will happen. Christian life necessarily includes persecution for the faith. And you know that there, there is a problem with those in the church today who want to craft a life without persecution and insist that it's Christian. And of course, they're deceived. It's not that we look for trouble, of course. Trouble will find us easily enough when we live Christ to the world. If, if it doesn't find us, then we're not living Christ to the world as we ought. Understand finally that a firm conviction, a firm conviction that we will be in heaven someday should motivate us to endure for Christ now. That's the last relationship between these two that I, I'll highlight. The writer of Hebrews tells us, you may remember from our study of Hebrews, Chapter 12, first two verses, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus calls us, I'm sorry, the writer calls us to look back to Jesus who showed us how to deal with suffering for our faith and imitate it. What would be for him the greatest kind of suffering for the glory of God, the cross, he was able to endure. Why? Because he found strength in the truth of what came after, namely the joy of pleasing his father. I want to give you uh, just two implications of verse 26. Just two implications here. Throughout this verse, verse 26, the personal pronoun is emphasized in the Greek sentence, which means that a personal relationship with Christ is key. It's key. Personal relationship with Christ is key. And that makes sense since we're talking about fruit that Jesus bears himself by his death. So he bears fruit after the nature of himself, the kind that will go on and multiply him in the world. And if you have understood that kind of, of um, hearty, aggressive uh, lifestyle, living God's holiness, uh, you must first be born again. If we are born again, we replicate Christ in the world. We go on to make more disciples as we're commanded to do, of course, with, with God's help. So we, we, um, we replicate Christ through all that we do. Number two, or the second implication is this. There's no such thing 
as a disciple of Jesus that bears no resemblance to him. No such thing. People that claim that they are Christians but show no fruit are really fooling themselves. True Christians are unmistakable. They bear fruit. The issue is not really about whether or not people in the church are willing to produce fruit in keeping with Christ's regenerative work in them, or will, because they will in, in, the, in, in, in their entire life as a believer. They will. It's a foregone conclusion that they will. Why? Because that is the only kind of fruit that Jesus produces. Jesus produced by his death a certain kind of individual is what we're saying. And that individual will look and he will act a certain way. It's silly to talk about then uh, the, the many different brands of Christianity or the kinds of Christianity or the kinds of Christians or how many different ways to have a relationship with Christ and so on and so on. And as silly as it is to, to talk about the options that apples have when it comes to what they look like and taste like and what color they are. They are what they are because they were made that way by the nature of the tree. And Christians are seed-bearing fruit that will replicate themselves because it's in their nature to do so. That's how they were recreated in Christ. Let me put it another way. There are no seedless Christians. Seedless grapes, seedless oranges, and the like have, have been manipulated and engineered by those who specialize in producing hybrids to satisfy the customer. Churches guided by church consultant gurus have, for quite some time now, specialized in appealing to the taste of the world by producing seedless grapes in the church. Christians who do nothing produce nothing, suffer nothing. These are fruits that claim to grow from Christ's stock, but they don't follow after the manner of the vine. They don't spread the true gospel. They don't make more true disciples. They don't follow Christ regardless. They still love this life and they'll receive no honor from the Father at the end of time. And that leads us Really, to our final word, let's conclude this way. Jesus always talks in extremes. Do you ever notice that? He talks in extremes when painting the ideal. You're either this way or you're that way. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either of the world or you belong to God. There really is no in-between with Christ, you see. This is, the, this is purposeful. He speaks this way purposefully. And this description, I think, is, it, it, it powerfully impacts unbelievers, of course, because they know where they stand with God. And they are confronted with the truth, and they need to reconcile with that. But it also speaks powerfully to us. It impacts genuine believers. When we see Jesus' standard of holiness in a particular area of our lives, well, we rejoice, and, and we say yes and amen, as we ought even if we fall short of it. And when we do fall short of it, it convicts us and, and it draws repentance from us, as it should. Jesus' seed-bearing fruit ideal will keep us on our toes 
It'll cause us to constantly examine ourselves and humble ourselves. He wants us to think that at the moment we disobey the word, we look very much like an unbeliever. And with a good dose of sobriety, we become proactive in our faith. We make the proper adjustments through confession. We get right with God. Christ is the fruit-bearing seed that produces seed-bearing fruit. It doesn't produce any other kind. It has a particular shape, smell, color, action. I'm being somewhat facetious here. It's unmistakable. Let's put it that way. Christ is the fruit-bearing seed that produces seed-bearing fruit. Those who belong to his stock produce fruit. That's a fact. He proved it and he ensured it by rising from the dead. The resurrection, beloved, makes all the difference. Our Father, we are so grateful to know this truth and to be the recipients or or to benefit from this, this great act of resurrection, the supernatural transformation that took place in in the tomb, hidden from our eyes, and yet we see its great results. Not only was the tomb empty and Jesus quite alive, but Lord, he has produced fruit after his nature. He he has saved individuals who themselves are fruit-bearing seeds, or seed-bearing fruits, rather. They go to, to replicate themselves, to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Lord, we pray that, that this understanding of the gospel is rather mechanical, um, under, or understanding of the mechanics behind the, uh, the uh, resurrection and how it affects us, we pray, will be fore on our minds the rest of this month as we approach Resurrection Day, We pray that it will motivate us and drive us not only to live the life of resurrection, but but that uh, it will um, it will compel us to preach the gospel, to proclaim the words of eternal life, so that in your mercy and grace you may grant faith and repentance to those who hear and raise them from the dead for your glory, for your honor, for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.